the last episode, we looked at the traditions associated with country music, and we followed those traditions, including the ways in which they manifested uh, to things like the costume of country music. And we looked at also secular and religious traditions. What I want to do in this particular episode, it's going to be, I think, fairly brief as well, but I want to follow some of the traditions that have been handed down into Southern music and music in general in the United States from Africa. That is its own journey, and that journey is influenced to some degree by the traditions that we've already covered, and by the way, vice versa. So let's go ahead and jump straight into that and get started. One of the first places we need to start with this conversation is by reflecting on what we actually know about the African traditions. And uh, what we actually know is really not as much as we like. There are several different reasons for this, and we covered a couple of them when we talked about literature earlier in this podcast series. But let's go back to those and just think about them for a second. First, there are not many records. Um, You have people moving from Africa over to the New World, and they come from a diverse range of individuals and groups uh, from Africa. Africa, again, is a really huge place. If you've never seen a map of it to scale before, you could fit a good portion of you know, North America and China and uh, India inside that continent and still have room left over for other places like Germany and France. So it's an enormous location, enormous. And to think of it as just, you know, one culture is, uh, it's quite frankly absurd. It's like thinking of all of North and South America as one culture. Uh, so you have a range of people coming to the new world from a diverse you know, uh, groups of people from Africa. And when they arrive, uh, there is an active push by Europeans to eradicate that culture and to assimilate them, as we saw inside the race section. So the the musical traditions that came with them, the ideas of music, the ideas of you know entertainment are not as easy to trace as we might wish that they could be. Uh, We can take some guesses and we can make some broad assumptions, but those are uh, just that. They're broad assumptions. Uh, We do know that they enjoyed, uh, that people from Africa enjoyed uh, performances. They enjoyed uh, entertainment. They enjoyed uh, participating in this entertainment. They enjoyed um, celebrating this entertainment. And that leads me to one of the first really broad things I can draw your attention to. If we go back to the European tradition, the European tradition is oftentimes very rigorous and defined. So for example, if we want to to have a slower paced song, there's a name for that. There's a certain form for that. Um, You know, we might have something like a nocturne, for example. Um, If we want to have something faster paced and something that uh, alludes to uh, certain forms, we would have an ode. Um, On the flip side, you have the African traditions which are oftentimes very impromptu and welcoming of other people to participate. So, you know, you, you might have one person that starts a rhythm and then somebody else, you know, jumps in and, and uh, you know, alternates that rhythm or challenges it or reinforces it. And you have those two very different concepts of making music. And again, those concepts begin to influence each other. And we'll, we'll look at that as we go forward, because really those two concepts uh, pulled together, influence a, a diverse range of, of uh, music that we have today. But again, going back to these roots, we can see that 
you know, that those different approaches influence a lot of different kinds of culture that manifest into the present. Um, I'll give one example, and this alludes to some of the next episodes that we'll look at in the series, but this is really the difference in essence between um, churches. So if you go to, uh, you know, more European style church or a white church or, you know, however you want to refer to it, people tend to just sit there and listen and, you know, things are, are um, quiet and uh, nobody participates, nobody directly participates or they rarely do. And, you know, some Baptist denominations, people are more active, but that's uh, very much like music. Whereas on the flip side, if you go to, um, you know, an African-American church, in many ways, these churches, a good portion of them, are active. Uh, people call and answer. This is one of the things that, for example, Martin Luther King Jr. built upon in his speeches. He invited people into his speeches. He invited, uh, you know, calling and responses to his speeches. And that does have some grounding in, uh, in musical traditions. So let's look at some more examples of that. Another aspect of this that manifests into um, the type of music that that has you know, been disseminated into things like perhaps the blues, um, perhaps ragtime, and so forth and so on, would be the the music that was used to entertain um, people who were enslaved who worked in the fields. Uh, so you might have you know imagine a, a whole row of people working on something like cotton or tobacco and they're having to pick it by hand and they they might have to coordinate their labor or they might just you know be out there all day working how do you go about communicating because you're not necessarily going to be close to other people music is a great way to go about doing that and uh, one way to coordinate that labor or to just communicate in general or even both is to uh to start the song and with the rhythm of the song you can coordinate that so you might um the, i'm thinking of a particular video of gandhi workers that you can actually find on youtube uh, but they would say something like you know i don't know but i've been told and then as that music that that rolls up to the next you know line to the end of that line everybody can lean everybody can lean together and now you know if you're pulling something heavier if you're um, you know, if you're uh, pushing in a tree or something like that, if you're singing a song that helps you to coordinate that labor. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is that you can communicate across long distances. So if you start a song, um, again, I'm thinking of the Gandhi workers. <laughs> I would encourage you to look this video up on YouTube. It's, it's available. Um, you can start the song and you can actually communicate again across large distances. So let's say that you know, you're Dave and you're trying to communicate with, uh, uh, you know, Sue across the, this vast distance. If you are Dave and you start singing the song, you know, um, oh, Susie Q, Susie Q, well, other people are going to pick that song up too. And now, you know, they're starting to sing about Susie Q and then it, it keeps working its way until it reaches Susie Q. And then Susie Q says, who started the song? And somebody says, well, it's, you know, Dave across the field. Now Dave has managed to use the song perhaps not only to coordinate his labor and to entertain people around him, but also to communicate across a long distance to Susie Q. One final thing that I want to draw attention to here is what I had talked about before with uh, Joel Chain Harris, which was that uh, you know, he managed to capture these African-American tales where oftentimes animals would stand in and uh, you know, for, for others. So for example, Bear Rabbit was a stand-in for um, an escaped slave. And this would be a way to offer advice to other 
other slaves without necessarily drawing the unwanted attention of slave masters, uh, Brother Bear and Brother Fox. The same thing applies in music as well. You can tell stories. You can tell uh, stories in such a way that you can pass information right under, literally right under the noses of uh, the masters without necessarily drawing attention. So, you know, you're, you're switching codes, you're communicating information across vast distances, you're coordinating labor, you're entertaining people. These rich traditions have been handed down through these groups. Um, and manifest in new and different and important ways in the present as well. I mentioned a minute ago that you have these very distinct styles of music that approach from the European tradition and the African tradition. And I also mentioned that these uh, different traditions influenced each other. One place that we can go ahead and demonstrate this and this you know, sort of creativity and this uh, uh, that comes out of African traditions is with ragtime. Now, I would be willing to wager that you know what ragtime is, even if you don't know that you know what ragtime is. And I'm going to give you an example, um, the probably the, the most famous example, uh, Scott Joplin. Scott Joplin it was a ragtime player who um, exemplifies everything that ragtime is. On the one hand, on the sort of bass side, you had this repeating set, this repeating pattern that would occur. And I, I would link that to the European tradition because it is this regular repeated uh, pattern. But on the other hand, there's this sort of improvisation that takes place on the treble side. And uh, that, that improvisation uh, files into some of the, the characteristics that I've already discussed to this point. So again, this is me using this for education purposes. I, I failed at the very beginning of this to give my, my warning, but I'm going to um, I'm going to go ahead and share just a little bit. Again, I would be willing to wager that you know this song. It's called The Entertainer. It might even make you hungry. Now, again, I bet that you know this song, and you probably know this song because of ice cream machines. Uh, that's the illusion I made just a second ago to making you hungry, but I hope that you can hear, and I hope that now that it's stuck in your head, it's a kind of an earworm, um, that you can recognize that the repeated pattern on the bass side, and then this sort of improvisation that takes place on the treble side, and that is a melding of the two different uh, traditions that we've been discussing, and it is one of the, the many ways that the musical um, ideas that people had have manifested into not just music of the South, but really music of the entire United States. The, the United States and the, the overall music, as you can see, I hope from this episode and the prior one, are heavily influenced by these Southern traditions. So when we talk about Southern music, Southern music is not just music that's in the South. It is music that sprang from the South and some of the traditions and ideas of music that people had in the South and that spread across the entire nation. And again, ragtime is just one more excellent example of this. Another tradition that we can discuss is certainly, got, it has to be the blues. We have to talk about the blues. Though a uh, discussion of music that uh, is, has manifested itself in the United States would be complete without the blues. The blues have something of a mysterious origin. Uh, nobody's quite sure where they came from. They just sort of seem to show up on the scene. Uh, but there are some some guesses. Uh, I'm just going to give a kind of a quick overview of some of them. 
One of the guesses would be that this is a sort of tradition that emerged again out of Africa and it was adapted and adopted uh, to the United States. And that came out of that sense of uh, mournful work that was heavily associated with uh, people who were enslaved during this particular period. Um, wherever it came from, whoever first started it, it, it began to show up in you know some of the some of the cities, and then professional musicians, which I'll discuss in just a second, began to pick that uh, that sound up and that form up, and to adapt it into their their music. Let's look at uh, two of those instances and discuss how the, those two instances don't necessarily reflect the blues as we might know them today, but they help to nonetheless establish the blues on a national stage. So with this form mysteriously emerging onto the scene, how did it become so widespread? And one of the first places that we could start would be with professional musicians whom I just alluded to a second ago. Uh, there are two that we can concentrate on, W.C. Handy and Gertrude Maul Rainey. Let's just concentrate on uh, uh, the, the former because I think that that's a really great way to go about telling the story. W.C. Handy was a traveling musician. And uh, what, what this meant is essentially, you know, today we would have a jukebox and if we wanted to listen to a certain thing, we would just go to the jukebox and, and make that input and then the jukebox would produce what we want to hear. This was a human version of that. And so what he would do is, you know, somebody would say, I want to hear this song and he would have to be able to perform that song on the spot so that that way, you know, people would want to pay him. Um, and in doing his travels, he came to a bar at one point and coming to this particular bar, um, you know, he, he was playing his set, he was doing his job and some people approached the stage and said, you know, Hey, if you want to take a break, we would like to, you know, make the music the way that we want to make the music and, and the form that we, uh, we have. And he said, you yeah, know, sure. Why not? You know, I'll go sit at the bar and have a drink or something of that nature. And so he went and sat down and uh, these individuals got up on stage and they began playing what we would today consider the blues. And uh, people in the crowd moaned and reacted and, and began to sway to it and to, uh, to really have that visceral reaction that caught his attention. Because as a professional musician, um, his, his concern is, how do I go about making money? I mean, that's really what he wants to do. And so he, he adapted this music. He, uh, he began to try to capture it because he wanted other people to be able to, um, well, I mean, to pay him for it as well. So um, let's listen to just a little bit of this. And I, I want to point out a couple of things afterward. This is what's called W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues. Now, the things I want to point out here is that this does not necessarily sound like what you would think of as the blues today. Um, the blues are slow and mournful, and you know we'll listen to some examples of those in just a second. But that does not sound slow and mournful. That sounds more upbeat and kind of like jazz. And that's no mistake because the blues were also the origin of this. And so as a professional musician with W.C. Handy, and I would throw Gertrude Mulraney in there as well, listened to these forms. And by the way, real fast, she has a story very similar to W.C. Handy. So we're really talking about both of them. Um, when they listened to this form, 
they did what professional musicians do, which is, okay, let's take what you have and let's see if we can adapt it and maybe make it into something else. And this is kind of what they made it into. But again, that's not what we would recognize as the blues today. So let's let's kind of diverge here and put jazz on the one hand and let's set the blues over to the other side and look at the distinctions between them. So let's talk about the blues as we understand it today. And I want to start by just playing a little bit of uh, a blues song from a man named Robert Johnson. And this is from Me and the Devil Blues. Okay, so this song illustrates some of the things that I want to discuss concerning the blues. First off, this is a more stripped down version. It, it is very distinct from what I played from WC Handy just a moment ago. Uh, it, it's recognizable today as what we would think of as the blues. And some of the forms that the blues have influenced, uh, you can even see a sort of one-to-one -one connection. I would say that this song, for example, comes close to uh, bands that have a heavy blues influence. Uh, like the black keys for example that's you know just you can almost see the instrumentation between the two the sort of stripped down guitar the sort of basic presentation another characteristic of it would be the repeated opening refrain it's repeated twice and then it's answered so uh early this morning heard a knock upon my door early this morning i heard a knock upon my door and that second time that he says it he even gives a little bit of almost like a yodel so you can see some of that influence as well some of the crossovers here uh, between the various genres and then he says in the third the response and said hello satan i believe it's time to go now this could be interpreted several different ways but one of the ways that i think you can approach it is that robert johnson uh, is making reference that uh, satan he needs to leave with satan because somebody else is knocking on the door now again this could be taken other ways but i'm going to tell you why i interpret it that particular way that is because um, the blues were played by individuals who were oftentimes at the very lowest rung of society. These were very talented musicians, but they were musicians that played in bar houses or um, you know, establishments of the night, we'll call it that, to be gentle in this particular case, but less than reputable places. And in order to be able to make a living, the, they would you know, play late into the evening. So they would play late into the evening on a Friday, late into the evening on a Saturday. And uh, then they would oftentimes not be able to attend to church services on Sundays because they would you know, be the entertainment for those locations on those particular days. So that, that's sort of thing number one. Thing number two is, you know, these are not people that are making a lot of money. So they, they don't have the money to be able to go out and afford some of these outfits that we talked about with country music you know country music we, we think of tassels we think of uh, boots we think of cowboy hats and that's because they were again heavily associated with the movies um, they did not have that luxury and so in order to you know make a presentation they oftentimes wore whatever they had and it might be a, a toss-off outfit that somebody else had 
And so the blues came to be heavily associated with a ragged appearance. And by the way, we can see that influence as well um, with others who adapted the blues. Uh, uh, let's see, people like uh, Bob Dylan, for example, had a more ragged style appearance. And uh, this was you know, just almost like an affectation that he put on eventually, not maybe originally, but eventually, because it was a way to emulate the style associated heavily with the blues. And then finally, because this is the lowest rung of society, because they have very little in the way of identity opportunities, because they have very little in the way of identity mobility, um, you have individuals who embraced a certain legend. And that legend is uh, a legend of selling their souls at the crossroads at midnight. And that, that legend, by the way, is one that comes from African traditions. They were, you know, sort of a trickster god there in Africa, and that was adapted into uh, the legends, you know, associated with European traditions, which would be the devil. Um, but it, yeah, the, the original legend was, you know, you could go to the, the crossroads at midnight, and if you caught the guy, you could get magical powers or otherwise engage with the guy. The story sort of varies. But uh, in the new world, it became, I sold my soul to the devil at the crossroads at midnight. And therefore, I got magical guitar playing powers. Um, that tradition was passed around among Delta Blues players, and it gave them a sense of identity in a, a, an unjust world. Um, they were condemned sometimes by their own communities, by the white community at large. Um, so they were the lowest rung. And the way to fight back against that was to embrace the identity opportunity offered to them. Okay, fine. If you see me as, you know, um, sort of an evil guy because I, you know, I'm playing music and I'm working in this kind of establishment. Fine. I sold my soul to the devil um, in order to get these guitar playing powers. How do you like that? Um, by the way, this is this is not a serious thing that I don't I would be willing to say that nobody ever seriously proposed and said, hey, I actually went down to the crossroads last night. It was a legend that they just embraced as a, a matter of their identity, sort of like um, Alice Cooper, for example, you know, putting on a certain uh, presentation on stages or, or you know even today Kanye West doing something like that um it's it's a presentation it's a a uh, and a kind of an act that they are putting on in order to generate controversy and get people to want to come see their shows um so yeah this is again that's how the blues begin to manifest Robert Johnson uh Tommy Johnson uh, Charlie Patton all these different individuals are playing music and embracing these identity uh, these these matters of identity. And that brings me to a quick side uh, story that I want to share. If you've ever wondered what the origin of chicken and waffles happens to be, it is absolutely everything I just said a second ago. If these individuals are playing until late into the evening, and then they get done, they're tired, they're hungry. Uh, it's not a simple thing to play in, you know, these establishments, especially in the South where it's really hot. There's no AC at this time. So what they would do is they would leave and, you know, they would go to an all-night diner. And in going to the all-night diner, they would go in and the all-night diner would still have some chicken left over from the night before. But they would also be in the process of cooking waffles for the, the, uh, the breakfast that they would be serving. And so these individuals would come in and they would just say, you know, give me the chicken and give me the waffles. And they would combine them. And uh, that became part of their diet. And that that diet has subsequently been passed down um, and adapted in, you know, how it's on menus everywhere. So it's one of those ironies that, you know, the the way in which these people are performing now today influences 
major artists who are making tons of money, people like Eric Clapton, and also their diets, um, chicken and waffles. You know, now you can go to a place like uh, uh, IHOP and you can find that on the menu. So that, again, the irony is that what was originally perhaps condemned or otherwise looked down upon has been embraced by the larger culture. And that brings me over to jazz. Jazz is something that took off from the blues. Again, I hope that you could hear some of the connection with W.C. Handy's work just a minute ago. If you go and look up Gertrude Mar Rainey, you should be able to hear some of that connection as well. Uh, the connection, I think, is a little bit more evident depending on the artist that you pick. Uh, Billie Holiday you know, is heavily associated with the, the blues on the one hand and jazz on the other hand. And I'm just going to play a little bit of one of her most popular songs called Gloomy Sunday. And I think it's pretty evident that it does embrace both of those traditions. So let's just give it a listen. Okay, again, I hope that you can hear the different traditions sort of embodied in what she's doing. Uh, I think if you listen to a good number, a good range of artists working inside of jazz, that you can hear, again, those influences, because what we're tracing here is really the DNA of this type of music and, and you know how it's split into these various different aspects. Um, my hope is, again, with this podcast, just to give you an overview and to give you, I hope, to trigger some curiosity on your part so that you can go and explore these artists more. Especially, by the way, if you're using a streaming service, something like Spotify, I can't encourage you enough. Go out, you know, add these artists to your playlist and listen to them. Give them a fair, uh, a fair shake, so to speak, because I think what you'll find is once you get past you know, some of the surface reticence that you may feel, oh, this is an older form of music, it's a really good form of music. And it's very, very entertaining. And uh, these artists were absolutely brilliant and amazing, uh, especially Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday is the kind of artist that you could put on, uh, I would say, on something like a you know Saturday afternoon and just sit and listen to you all Saturday afternoon. She's absolutely a wonderful performer and had a unique, haunting voice. And that starts to uh, carry us more toward the present. Uh, with the present, I've already, again, alluded to this a little bit as well. The blues begin to adapt, uh, jazz begins to adapt, and we, we see them in very different ways. Uh, some of them go a bit more mainstream, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. And then some of them sort of flip and become something else. Uh, I'll, I'm going to put the blues on hold just for a second, set those to the side. Let me concentrate on what jazz sort of turns into. Um, you have some that, you know, go on, uh, some artists that go on and become professionals, so to speak. Um, there's a, a kind of big band sound that comes out of this. Uh, artists like Jelly Roll Morton, for example, I think that you could trace some of Jelly Roll Morton's work directly to other artists working um, as well, even as recently as say, the 1990s in uh, North Carolina. We had uh, uh, the Squirrel Nut Zippers, for example, which I, I think you could, again, directly trace back to some of the, the artists and the ideas that we're covering right now. But even more uh, 
directly tied to that. You know, people like uh, Wynton Marsalis, uh, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, uh, these are all uh, artists out of the South. But again, even more recognizable than that would be um, Louis Armstrong. And I want to make sure that I share Louis Armstrong as a part of this podcast, if for no other reason than sometimes when I teach this, I'm like, okay, you guys, let's talk about Louis Armstrong. How many people are excited? I'll have one or two students raise their hands and say, oh yeah, I like his music. And the rest of them just draw a blank. And I'm like, okay, hang on, let's let's put on some Louis Armstrong and then let's talk about Louis Armstrong. So I'm going to play a little bit here. I see trees of green. I see them blue for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Inevitably, when I put this music on, everybody else in the class lights up because they say, oh, I recognize that. I had no idea that that's what the guy's name was. And that to me is a tragedy because Louis Armstrong is a national treasure. Um, he's a national treasure for the music that he produced, for the, 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 just the sound and the way that he adapted uh, jazz and some of the traditions that we've been looking at to this point. Uh, but even more than that, he's a national treasure for really what he represents. Um, we've covered some of this in the race section, but again, I want to tie this back in right here. Um, if you've only ever listened to Louis Armstrong, go and, go and look up a video of him performing. Um, that's I, I hate that you couldn't see the video I just played a second ago because in all the videos that you see, Louis Armstrong has the biggest smile on his face. And it's just it's so wonderful. He's got such an inviting smile. And the tragedy behind this is that he would go out on stage every night and, and produce this smile, this, this wonderful, wonderful smile and this wonderful voice. And he was a you know, very talented musician uh, on the trumpet. And that was something that he did in spite of the, the racist attitudes that he would endure from people around him. Um, it, it, they recently, I think it was about a decade ago at this point, released some of his, um, his private reflection sort of like his own private podcast i go i guess you could say and he would say you know people would call me names and uh, people would you know taunt me and whatnot but i would go out there every night and i would produce you know what i what i would do um and i would make sure that i smiled because i always wanted to set an example that 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 was untouchable i did not want anybody to say i was uh, you know ungrateful or that i didn't appreciate what i had i wanted people to be able to look at me and to feel inspired. And so I did it every single night for that reason. And again, once you realize that, and then, you know, you, you watch him smile on a video, you can't help but to think, gosh, how much pain is this man actually in um, that he could, you know, endure this, but then produce such wonderful things out of, out of that. So I want to make sure to share that story, um, you know, it's a kind of cap off what we're talking about with uh, jazz, um, just in case, you, um, you, you're looking for some others, um, some other examples of this. Let me, let me provide just at least one more. Okay, the two others that I at least want to briefly mention, and I just want to share a little bit with you, uh, because these are also really wonderful artists that could, uh, that need to be in your music catalog. I would say Cannibal Adderley would be a really great one to add. Uh, look up his music, listen to it. This is sort of free form um, jazz, so to speak, and uh, it's 
It embodies a lot of the traditions that we've been looking at already in this podcast. The other one that is, is absolutely excellent um, is Charles Mingus. I'm going to play just a little bit of Mingus. Uh, and I hope that you can see, you, you probably, by the way, have heard this song before. It's been in commercials and, and movies and things like that. But uh, I at least want to put it in on your radar and perhaps into your music catalog. Okay, the reason I wanted to share that is because I, I hope after listening to some of the things that I've talked about at this point, you can hear maybe maybe a touch of almost ragtime kind of uh, construction in there because you have a, a sort of repeated line on the bass and then you have this uh, improvisational stuff going on in the treble. Um, you can hear some of the influences of freeform jazz in there. Uh, it, all of these different things are poured into um, this particular artist. And if nothing else, again, I, I hope that you'll listen to Charles Mingus. Um, this song, it, you have to apologize because I've never actually heard anybody say it. So it's either 2BS or LBS. I've never been able to figure out because, you know, I can't change a font. But it's definitely one of those two if you're interested in looking that up. Okay, this is a, an odd place to go for a second, but I, I want to talk about Shakespeare. Shakespeare originally was written for the masses. Uh, people would come to the theater and, you know, they would pay uh, just a little bit of money and they would stand down in the pit and they would watch it being performed on stage. And yes, there were some richer people that would sit up in the upper rafters and, and watch it as well. Uh, but yeah, it was produced really for everyone. Um, if you've only ever read Macbeth or Hamlet, you're not really getting Shakespeare. You need to go and read some of the other stuff. It's funny. If you adapted it just slightly, it would make a good, you know, some of it would make a good sitcom today or a good movie. Um, in fact, some of his works have been turned into very famous movies um, and so forth and so on. Now, today, though, we think of Shakespeare as for upper class people. Oh, they, you know, they have to really enjoy it. They have to develop an ear for it. And that journey from, you know, just being written for everybody to being written for sort of an elite is the exact same journey that the blues have taken. This was written for, again, people and the, the bar houses and things like that I had mentioned just a minute ago. And now today, it's seen perhaps as a more elite form uh, in some ways. It's also, and I don't know any other way to put this, it's also being consumed in form. Uh, if we look at the Blues Brothers, for example, the Blues Brothers definitely paid an homage to this music uh, but they adapted it to themselves. And that we could really say the same thing for you know, people like Tom Petty, uh, for the Rolling Stones, for, again, Bob Dylan, to go back to some of these other artists. They took that sound, which was rediscovered in Great Britain, by the way. Um, they would, you know, these artists in Great Britain would listen to this music and say, wow, this is really fantastic. And then they would adapt it, again, Rolling Stones, The Who, so forth and so on. 
um, into their, their sound. And this is how we arrived to rock and roll as we know it today is these, again, these artists adapted it. Um, in some cases they even adapted the legends or they, uh, the legends were ascribed to them. So, uh, the doors, for example, Jim Morrison, um, if we go to Nirvana, we go to Kurt Cobain, uh, these, these individuals sometimes were seen as, oh, they, you know, he must have sold his soul to the devil to be able to play like that. And look, he died young. So therefore the legend has continued. Um, that has been handed down again into the present. That is not to say that this is strictly, uh, you know, only associated with those type of artists, but certainly um, it has been adapted into that, that particular genre and in that particular way. Now I want to direct the conversation in a slightly different way here. I'm going to play just a little bit of this clip and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, so it might be a little bit difficult to understand what she's saying, but I uh, I do want to call attention to the the production of this. Again, if the blues and and whatnot turned into rock and roll as we understand it today, that sounds very much like rock and roll. But if you pay attention to the lyrics, what she's singing is "Didn't it rain, children? Oh yeah, didn't it rain?" Uh, and then she goes on to sing, "It rained for forty days, it rained for forty nights," and that should sound familiar because what we have actually here is a gospel song. And no conversation about music would be complete without, again, wrapping it back around to the religious traditions. Religious traditions have struggled with what uh, secular, secular music has done. So as rock and roll began to develop, there was initially a reticence to embrace that. And now there's, you know, more of a, a movement in that direction. And the person that I just played, Sister Rosetta Tharp, really embodies one way that people have approached this the circumstance she took the instrumentation that uh that we've examined you know through some of the other artists that we've looked at and she adapted it and and uh turned this into gospel music and it's really wonderful uh to be able to listen to and it's very engaging and it, it gives you food for thought like what is the role of music in worship and that's Something that we could talk about uh, as we move into religion and the rest of the podcast inside the series, uh, podcast episodes inside of this this season, I should say. But uh, it, again, it gives food for thought because music is not just neutral. It doesn't just sit outside of things. It is a part of culture. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of our identity. And when one group is doing something that resonates with people, the other group tends to look at that and say, how can I adapt it? And Sister Rosetta Tharp is an excellent example of this. And so I just want to start to wrap up some of the threads that we've covered in this episode in the prior one. In the prior one, I examined how some white artists, uh, you know, people like perhaps Elvis, uh, Pat Boone, covered the music created by black musicians. And this did last for a time until we got powerful musicians and charismatic musicians that came along that just simply could not be copied. So one really great example is Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke has such a, a distinct voice 
um, that it just could not be reproduced by another individual. Uh, Little Richard is another great example. You know, somebody that that put on a powerful performance um, that just could not be replicated. Uh, you know, you can't have another artist come in and just you know redo this. Little Richard is Little Richard; that he's the original. There's no copying him. Um, so that's one strand that I want to be able to wrap up here. It illustrates the way in which music continued to adapt. It continued to influence others, and, and eventually, this this yoke of uh, of copying what other musicians had done was uh, was thrown off, and uh, as as people begin to produce their own distinct sounds. And that brings me to the end. Um, as much as I would love to just sit here, I'm, I hope you can tell very passionate about music. I, I love talking about music. I love sharing music. Um, we, we have to draw a line somewhere. I hope that you will go and further investigate some of the artists that I mentioned, uh, some others that I did not. Um, Booker T and the MGs, go look up Green Onions. Make sure that you know that you know this song. It's another one of those songs that um, you you will recognize instantly the minute it starts playing, no matter what generation you're from, because it's just, it's like it, at some point in becoming an American, somebody played this song for you. Uh, go look up Otis Redding. Otis Redding, you know, continues this journey that we've been discussing with you know, jazz and whatnot as it begins to shift into R&B. Um, and as R&B also, you know, is, is like a, a relative to, uh, to rock and roll. This is another strand of that. As much as I wish that we could sit here and just listen to music, unfortunately, I try to keep these podcasts as short as possible um, and we have to go ahead and move forward. But I do, again, hope that I've, I've given you the tools you need to further investigate these artists and these genres uh, so that you can learn more about them and how they represent music that came from the South or was heavily influenced by people who lived or worked or loved or died or whatever from the South. See you next time.